Dear congregation, Isaiah 45, excuse me, 54 verse 17 says, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me. Now this does not mean that no weapons will ever be formed against the church. Quite the opposite. Lots of weapons are constantly being forged and formed against God's people and the church. Satan and all his minions are determined to rout the church and destroy as many as they can. But God speaks out over all of it. No weapon that is formed against my people shall prosper. You see, congregation, the Lord reigns supreme. And he, by his grace and power, can turn everything that is designed to take down his people. He can turn it for good being an almighty God and also a gracious heavenly Father. What comfort the people of God can have in all their afflictions, trouble, and difficulties. The Lord stands guarantee. But how we should entrust ourselves then to this God, whoever we are, this God who is able to save to the uttermost any sinner who comes unto God by him. And this exactly is what Paul learned to do by grace, taught by the Spirit, as we hope to see with the help of the Lord from our text passage, which is Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. And I will read at this time verse 5. Acts 28 and verse 5. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Our theme looking to the Lord is God's grace triumphs despite venom. We'll see, first of all, the serious threats that tests that truth. Secondly, the quiet trust drawn from that truth. And thirdly and lastly, the glorious advance the gospel makes because of that truth. God's grace triumphs despite venom. The serious threats, the quiet trust, and the glorious advance the gospel makes because of that truth. Well, children and young people, the Apostle Paul was no stranger to danger. We find him in our text having landed on the island of Melita or 
Malta, about 60 miles from the Italian peninsula where he was headed. You see, he was on his way to Rome to appear before Caesar. And this trip through the Mediterranean was no leisurely trip, quite the opposite. Paul was a prisoner of the state, having been handed over by the Jews to the Romans years already before. He and 275 other prisoners and some officers and guards who were to watch over them were en route to Rome. And they had stopped in Fair Haven where Paul had warned the captain not to set sail and yet the captain for his own reasons had decided to embark from Fair Haven heading for a harbor in Crete where he wanted to winter because it was more commodious or more comfortable to, to winter there. But as they had come then into the Mediterranean Sea, things turned very bad, very quickly. These experienced sailors had tried all sorts of means to navigate this boat to safety. They even resorted to lightening the load, even to their own disadvantage, because this is how they, they made money. And yet even despite all these things, they were bobbing up and down on the deathly seas for about 14 days, two weeks, during which they saw neither sun nor stars. Imagine that. And they didn't eat for all of those two weeks. Finally, Paul had stood up and had encouraged them with the word of God that God had given to them that no lives would be lost. Then on the 14th night, the sailors sensed that they were close to land. They eat a small meal together and the ship runs aground. And in that moment, this ship is broken up. The sailors want to kill the prisoners to prevent them escaping, but the centurion who was favorable towards Paul commanded that everyone should be kept alive and that anyone who could swim would swim to land and that those who could not swim should grab a hold of pieces of wood and try to reach land. And so though it had looked like the apostle Paul would die, instead the Lord had kept him alive and all the prisoners with him. Imagine that. In accordance with what the angel had said to Paul, all the prisoners were saved because of Paul. Charles Spurgeon says, for the sake of one good man, all on board the vessel were preserved. And so picture with me, congregation, this company of men coming up out of the waters onto the rocky slopes of the island Malta. It would have been seasonally, according to the season, very cold. And these men would have looked in a terrible state, bedraggled, emaciated from a two-week storm, not having slept at all during this time and eaten hardly anything 
Kelvin pictures this in his commentary as if 276 men were coming up, as it were, out of the jaws of the sea, climbing up on the rocky coast of the island of Malta. He says it's as if the sea is spewing them out onto the dry land, and there they, they arrive, cold, crawling up to safety, happy to be alive, but uncertain of what would lay ahead. Now you can visit Malta even today, and the island is about 180 square miles. And the inhabitants of this island are called by the text barbarians, which means that the Greeks and the Romans looked at these people as barbarians. They didn't speak Greek or, 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 or Latin. And so to the people, to the Romans and to the Greeks, they just kind of spoke this barbarian language. They actually had a very interesting history. They had descended from the Phoenicians, the northern part of Israel, and they had been sea, uh, sea people, sailors for the most part, who traversed the whole Mediterranean. And even inscriptions have been found as far as Brazil and South America from Phoenicians and from the people that lived in this area. Quite a remarkable thing. But imagine climbing up the rocky coast of this island, no idea where you were, no idea of what the people would be like in this area. But to the surprise, perhaps, of these prisoners and their guards, we read that the islanders greeted the people with no little kindness. Imagine them trying to converse one with another. Who are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? The islanders saw the wretched condition of these men and they began to make a fire so that these men, fresh out of the sea, could warm themselves. What a kind reception these complete strangers received from the islanders. And Kelvin says, behind the smiles of these islanders, Paul would have seen the smile of his heavenly father, who had been true to his promise and had brought Paul and the rest of these men to safety on the island. But notice, congregation, how the apostle did not remain idle. In fact, it teaches us a lesson that no one should consider themselves to be above the duty of serving others. And Paul, despite the fact that he was an apostle, he stoops to pick up bundles of sticks to put on the fire. He's ready to labor with his hands as he so often was for the benefit of others. He doesn't consider it to be beneath him. He doesn't just sit there close to the fire and pride himself in all his accomplishments thus far. No. Paul does not think himself above menial work or menial tasks. He would stoop to carry wood 
Or you would, as the Savior said, grant a cup of cold water, even in Christ's name. But children, as the apostle is doing this work of carrying wood, carrying sticks to the fire, perhaps having a bundle of wood there that he has in his arms heading towards the fire and about to throw it in, suddenly something, probably sensing the heat of the fire, fastens itself on Paul's arm, biting into his skin. We're told that it's a viper. It's a poisonous snake. There it was lurking in the brush and it leaps on Paul and puts its poisonous fangs into Paul's flesh, biting him and releasing venom into the bloodstream of this helpful apostle about 60 years old. He has escaped the dreadful storm, but this slithery serpent has found this man of God and does what he can to bring this man down in the sight of all these people. Congregation, venom. Do you know what venom is? Venom is that poison which animals can produce in order to kill. For some, even bee stings can be deadly. And certainly in this case, and the islanders notice it right away, this is a poisonous snake. And anyone who receives a bite from a snake like this will not survive, will not outlive this, will not live to speak about this. And immediately these islanders begin whispering to each other, this must be a very bad man. Indeed, he escaped this storm, but vengeance does not suffer this one to live. You see, congregation, Paul was no stranger to suffering. Not just physical suffering, of which he had a great share, but also emotional and spiritual suffering, the whispers, the slander, the reproaches of others fell upon him. He writes even before this incident in Malta, but he writes in his, in, in his writing in 2 Corinthians, he writes that his mission had taken him into afflictions, into necessities, into distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, in stripes above measure, in prisons more often, in deaths oft. This apostle was familiar with basically every sort of threat, deadly threat. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. This was before the incident of our text, so this was at least the fourth time. A night and day have I been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, 
in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, every imaginable trial and difficulty Paul had had to go through. And he did it all for the name and for the sake and for the love of his master who had given him so much. And if he required this, and if the gospel cause required this, then should he not endure all things for the elect's sake? You see, congregation, the Christian life is a narrow way. Remember that. The next time suffering, difficulty, reproach, slander, whatever it is, comes your way. We must, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of heaven, dear believers. And everything, reverently speaking, is fair game. The Lord apportions affliction to every one of his children. And he knows exactly in what measure and what kind. Samuel Rutherford says that the Lord has, as it were, a checkerboard of white and black, and he puts the one next to the other. And sometimes the white can be so small and the black can be so great, but the Lord knows exactly what in the life of his people will most tend to his honor and to their sanctification. And who are we then to question the Lord? Oh, indeed, we do question him. And we read of this also in Job and in Jeremiah and in others, other sections of Scripture. The great men of the Scriptures were of like passions as we are. Suffering affected them deeply. It made them to cry out. And yet in the end, through strength given to the Lord, they learned the secret of surrendering and submitting to whatever it was that the Lord had for them and had apportioned to them. In congregation, I don't think we should imagine that Satan was removed from this situation. The devil was certainly at work and is at work seeking whom he may devour. And God's people here know him to be that ancient foe. Of whom Luther said, we tremble not for him. His wrath we can endure. For we know his doom is sure. And yet in the meantime, congregation, he is a fierce foe. One of the reasons we know that Satan was particularly after the Apostle Paul is you can read just a few chapters back in Acts chapter 19 that an evil spirit speaks on one occasion and he says this, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Speaking to someone else, the sons of Sceva. And so this demon is basically saying, I know the name Jesus, I know who he is. And I know Paul. Don't think that in the demon world the name of Paul was unknown. No, they knew about Paul. They were out as much as they could to make Paul's life miserable 
and to hinder the proclamation of the gospel. To the Thessalonians, Paul one time writes, Satan hindered me. We don't know exactly what that looked like. And we know that, that Satan cannot go one millimeter further than the Lord allows him, but he is a foe, and he is a strong foe. I'm sure Satan and his demons knew that Paul's ministry, commissioned as it was by the Lord Jesus Christ, was to reach so many. And as he was headed here, even to Caesar in Rome, they're seeking to do everything they can to kill the Apostle Paul. And that's why the Apostle says we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. There are two dangers in the Christian life, and the one is to overestimate the work of Satan, as if he has power he does not have. But I think most of us probably underestimate the designs of Satan. Did you know that in the time, in the very month and week that lies before us, leading up to what people call Halloween, that devil worship is the greatest of the whole year. And people seriously offer sacrifices and call upon and celebrate Satan. Do you know that in the state of Michigan there are temples that are erected to Satan, for Satan worship. Even in Grand Rapids, where I'm from, a pole has been erected to worship and celebrate Satan, and people gather there with their children. Imagine that, in honor of Satan. I had an African student who said, we are doing everything we can on the continent of Africa to root out witch doctors and root out Satan worship, but you here in America, you're bringing it in. You're fast becoming the pagan nation that we are seeking not to be. Congregation, will you pray against Satan's devices? Not just this week, certainly this week, but all the time. Let us put on the armor of all prayer and beseech God that he would trample under Satan, that he would trample Satan soon under the feet of believers, as he has promised in Romans 16. Well, congregation, we see these threats which test the truth that God's grace triumphs over the venom of Satan. We wish to see now secondly here the quiet trust that Paul evidences based on this truth. The quiet trust. It's a remarkable thing that we read in our text in verse 5. That Paul who had not seen the viper but feels the viper very much. In that very moment he does not lose his composure whatsoever. Children, I don't know about you, but if I had been in Paul's situation and a viper had bit my hand or my arm, I would have jumped. I would have panicked, I think. I would have cried. 
screamed, asked for help. But Paul does nothing of this kind. It's almost as if he anticipates that this will happen. He certainly knew that Satan was so after him that after a while this didn't surprise him at all. And and he shows a composure and a calm under this attack that we wish to look at. Because therein the grace of God is opened up for us, a grace which the Lord gives to his people. And he reaches out to his people in the scriptures. But why was it that Paul could be so calm and composed under this snake bite? Feeling that venom coursing through his veins. How could he be so calm? Well, first of all, the apostle Paul knew that he had appealed to Caesar and the Lord had promised him to Caesar, thou shalt go. And he knew the Lord was faithful to his own word, that the Lord could not lie. In fact, he says that in Titus 1 verse 4, he says of the Lord who cannot lie. And so his trust is in the unshakable word of God. But secondly, we read in Mark chapter 16 verse 17 and 18, where the Lord promises to the apostles this first generation of ministers, and these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, shall they take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. This is a special promise, which is also repeated, by the way, in Luke 10, verse 18 and 19. Behold, I give unto you power. Jesus says to the apostles to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And there are so many promises for God's children in the scripture regarding difficulties and attacks and assaults. We already heard one, no weapon formed against God's people shall prosper. The Lord says to his his people in all times and places, he says, he will keep thee from all evil. He will keep thy soul. The Lord is able to deliver the godly from trouble. When thou passest through the waters, they shall not overflow thee, and so on. Many are the promises that the Lord gives his people that they can confide in and entrust themselves to body and soul that does not mean that no child of God will ever get sick or that no child of God will ever be in an accident or no child of God will suddenly lose his or her life or that no child of God will ever be martyred for the faith no not at all the Lord makes that clear sickness is part of his providence and the martyrs have been the seed of the church But the promise of God is this, child of God, that Satan, the world, or your own sinful flesh cannot reach into your heart and life and do anything that the Lord does not permit and cannot take you one hour, one minute before the Lord has ordained that your task is over. As one minister said one time, You, child of God, are immortal 
until the moment of your death. In other words, God has determined every step of your feet and he will preserve you. He will preserve your going out and your coming in from this day forward until that day he calls you home. And everything that he sees fit to bring your way must serve his greater glory and your sanctification. For so it's the Lord's will. I believe there's another reason why Paul had such a quiet trust in these circumstances, and that is that he knew congregation of a worse viper than this particular one. He knew of the venom of sin, to use that picture. You see, the Bible speaks about the plague of our own hearts, which is the plague of sin in our own depraved nature. And sin has this resemblance to a snake or a viper that it is subtle and it is dangerous. It can slither around in places where you do not see it. It can hide among the brush and it can leap upon you at a moment's notice. And like this viper, sin does exceeding great damage. Think about that the next time you're tempted. The pleasures of sin promise much, but they are a trap. And there hides a snake in it all, a poisonous snake. And unless God prevents it, might be your death. Even if you were unsaved, your eternal death. There's a book by Ralph Venning called The Plague of Plagues, which deals with sin. This is the worst plague, the worst venom at all, of, of all. We should be much more on our guard, much more cautious against the venom of sin than any poison that this world could ever produce. And since the Apostle Paul knew this and spoke so often about the sin even that dwelled in his own members, the lusts of the flesh, the reality of sin which made him to cry, O wretched man that I am. Since he knew that plague, since he knew that viper, since he understood that venom, he could view everything else in the right perspective. Sin is the worst trouble, the worst plague of all. You see, congregation, the Apostle Paul here is held out by the Holy Spirit as someone not so much to imitate, though that certainly is true, but someone in whom the grace of God has so worked in his life that he is able to face whatever comes his way in the proper way. He sees things by proper light, by God's light. Spiritually, he has an accurate estimate 
in these moments of, of how things really are. The worst thing he could do in this moment is to dishonor his sender and his maker with all these prisoners looking on. To bring shame and disgrace to his God. That would be far greater evil than for him to succumb in these moments physically or health-wise. Child of God, do you see life that same way? You pray God to keep you from that hidden snare and from those things which can, as, as you may fall into them, bring dishonor to the name of God and shame to the cause of Christ and great damage to your soul. Oh, to live that way. To see sin as worse than suffering. To esteem the venom of sin as, as infinitely worse, much worse than the venom that may be brought our way through suffering, through Satan, through other people. The Puritans had much to say about afflictions and how it is to have a quiet heart under afflictions. And one of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, he says three things that may be helpful, especially to saints going through trials just now. And the first thing is this, all trouble is momentary and all benefits are eternal. And what Brooks means by that is weigh the things of life this way. Trials, sure, they may be very severe, but they are but for a time. They are but temporary. And the glory which God has prepared for you, dear believer, far outweighs them. Secondly, God knows how to deliver his people from troubles. And sometimes, remember this, sometimes by smaller troubles, he delivers you from greater troubles or sins. God has, God has a way of keeping his people low in afflictions and troubles, lest they be puffed up and lest they be high-minded and fall into greater troubles and greater sins. It is good that we be kept low on our knees on our face before the Lord. And the Lord knows how to do that. Oh, that we would be like the Puritans and improve our afflictions. Take stock of what it is that the Lord has seen fit to bring our way and seek to be benefited spiritually by them. To not let any affliction, as one Puritan says it, to be wasted on us in terms of our humiliation and our sanctification. So Thomas Brooks says, remember that all trouble is momentary and all benefits are eternal. And God knows how to deliver his child from trouble. And sometimes by smaller troubles, he delivers from greater troubles or from sins. And his third lesson in the midst of trials is this, child of God, you will only gain in the end. 
to have that long-term perspective. So often we are short-sighted in how we esteem the troubles of life. But the light afflictions which are but for a moment, they, they have this greater and eternal glory in view. When the Lord does this in the life of his children, he makes all things to work together for good. We don't always see that. And how the Lord does that is often mysterious. And much of it may be shrouded from our view. But what he says in his word is true, notwithstanding what I see or know or don't see or don't know. All things. All things. Work together for good. To them that love God. To them that are the called according to Christ, to God's purpose. Thomas Brooks quotes one martyr who when he died said, this my suffering is but winking and I will be in heaven forever, very soon. Would, would, would that we would have that quiet trust that the Lord holds out to you, dear children of God. He says in his word, that he that stays upon the Lord his God will be kept in perfect peace. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Oh, for the character of God to be our stay, our support, that which we lean on and look to, no matter what comes our way. I've spoken mostly to believers here thus far. I want to say something to those of you who are still outside of Christ. My friend, whoever you are, I pray that you would know this about yourself, that you are not ready to die. And that you are walking a path that is slithering with venomous vipers and the next one may drag you down to hell you are not safe you're not safe as you are and to simply cross your fingers and to go on thinking that somehow somewhere all will be well friend it can be this week it can be this very night that death, as it were, as a serpent, arises and takes you. And indeed, within minutes or even less, you're gone. You wouldn't be the first one that that happens to. And how will you ever face an eternity in hell forever? Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in that bottomless pit prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't you understand that what Satan is doing right now is he is seeking to drag as many of the children of Adam down there with him. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. But he seeks madly. And he operates in the church. Sometimes I think especially in the church. 
He doubles his efforts. He gets people in all kinds of subtle ways to put off conversion, to put off the claims of the gospel. Yes, you hear serious things. Yes, your conscience is shaken at some level. And when you, yet when you leave these doors and when you go back into your cars or trucks, you go back to work tomorrow, these things fleet away and you know who's so very happy about that. Satan is rejoicing because another sermon has come and gone and yet you are not saved. And my unconverted friend, it's even worse than that. Because you should not be even as much concerned about the vipers and the venom around you as that venom that dwells in your own heart. Have you never, ever caught a glimpse of that viper inside? That perhaps in an evil temper, with harsh words or with evil thoughts, or, or, or with pride and arrogancy, or, or, or anger and rage against God shows itself. That is the worst of all. We should remember what the Lord Jesus said, and that is not to be so preoccupied with the slivers and the splinters that are in other people's eyes, but rather the beams that are in our own eye, and you can say, those serpents which crawl around in our heart, that plague of all plagues, that sin in which we are conceived and born. The Puritans encouraged us to study our own depravity, to give thought to the fact that it's not even your actual sins or your sins of omission as heinous and as wretched and as condemnable as they are. Those aren't even the worst, but the source of it all, which is the depravity in which you were conceived and, and born. If you see that the root of the root is evil, that is, in me dwelleth no good thing, my friend, if you could just see just one glimpse of that truly, genuinely, just for what it is, that it would, as it were, jump out at you and, is that how it is in my heart? The Lord would sanctify that to your heart. If that would make you to cry out, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Wherever can I find forgiveness of sins? Wherever can I find a peace that passes understanding? Wherever can I find that confidence that makes a difference in life and in death? Oh, that eternity would be bound upon our hearts to such an extent by the working of the Holy Spirit that you could not take one step until you knew that God can and does deliver the needy when they cry. He saves their souls when death draws nigh. This God is a God who saves the worst, the vilest, the most wretched sinner. My friend, don't rest. Don't wait. Don't excuse yourself. Don't delay. Delay not, lest His anger rise. And you perish in the way. My friend, 
If we stood by your grave this week, what would we say? What could we say? This man, this woman, this boy, this girl came into this world and left this world. And all that there ever was was venom, snakes, poison. And now they're forever in that place where the devil is and his angels. Oh, the regret that will hound you forever. Oh, those sermons that will come back to your mind and memory. You read of the rich man in hell that Abram said to him, son, remember. And even that word son, he was a child of the covenant in a certain sense. He was a child of Abram's son. You had so many privileges. You were so close to the kingdom. There was the Lord with his arms outstretched to sinners, beckoning, calling, imploring you, beseeching you. Imagine that. In Christ's stead, beseeching sinners. Be reconciled unto God. But ye would not. The worst thing about hell will be that gnawing worm, that conscience that accuses forever. I would not. I loved my sin too much. And see where it has gotten me. Oh, how you will accuse yourself. Your mind will accuse your body. And yes, you will have a body in that day. Soul and body will be reunited. Samuel Davies in a sermon on this matter, he says that the torments of hell will be like this for the unconverted. Their, their body will accuse their soul and say, why did you make me sin? You should have known better. You heard sermons, but you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't obey and hear. I'm in hell with you, O soul. And the soul will say back to the body, but body, you, you also, you also turned me away from my God. And there in this torture, this everlasting torment, body and soul forever, Friend, while you hear God's voice and He speaks, make no mistake, He speaks through His Word. While He proffers peace and pardon, hear His voice today, lest if you your heart would harden, you would perish in the way. Oh, cast your lot in with the people of God. Fall as a helpless sinner upon the grace in Jesus Christ in the gospel. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. And entrust your life, soul, and body unto this God who makes no mistake, who is gracious and compassionate, who sent His Son into this world, this sin-stained world, to deal with sin and Satan and all the devils on the cross. There he was on the cross. Not just one viper, but all the forces of hell were unleashed upon him and no helper, no aid, 
No smile from his father. For him, there was no support, no stay. But he did it for sinners. He did it for the likes of Saul of Tarsus, this raging enemy. He did it for vile sinners in order that we might look to him as a sinner and nothing more and nothing less and cry to him, Lord, save me. Save me from my sins. And those who will not rest until they know that they know that Christ is their portion. Congregation, shall we then not through power, the power of the Most High, bid farewell to every sin? Shall we do here spiritually what Paul does physically and shake off these many vipers of sin and temptations, evil lusts, shake them off into the fire in which they deserve to go? I think of it this way. Maybe this will help you the next time you're in temptation. Paul feels and sees this viper. And he says, you know, that snake belongs in the fire. And he shakes his hand. And in the fire, that snake goes. That's where sin belongs. That's where Satan belongs. That's where evil lusts belong. Flee evil lusts, the Bible says. And all in faith, all in that quiet repose and trust that the Lord gives to his people on the basis of his promises, on the basis of his character. He promises that those who dwell in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Lord keeps his people in his tender care. And this is proved in the remainder of our passage, to which we turn now in our third point, the glorious advance because of this truth. Because what happens is the snake has been cast into the fire and it burns up. And the people look at Paul. They wonder, what's going to happen? Perhaps they even saw the imprints of the bite on his hand. After all, Paul bore a lot of scars from all the attacks and all the assaults that he suffered. But after some time, the barbarians changed their mind and they realized that, that there's something amazing going on. And, and just as public opinion can shift in a few moments, in a few hours, in a few days, they go from saying this man must be a murderer to saying this man must be a god. It shows you the fickleness of the human mind. And, and let us be grounded in the truth of Scripture. Let's, let's not follow public opinion. Let's not follow the reasoning of our own hearts. Let us be fixed upon the truth of God. One commentator says, he was more of a murderer than a God. After all, he had persecuted Christians and had attended to the death of Stephen. And yet he was a forgiven murderer. And he was never a God, even though he was God's servant. For the sake of Christ, hell couldn't touch 
Paul. And Christ was living in him. And the life that he now lived, he lived by the faith of Christ, or faith in Christ who had loved him and who was loving him till the bitter end. In congregation, the amazing thing is that, that the gospel is advanced. Because as the people witness that nothing happens to Paul, the whole island opens up to the gospel. The governor, Publius, hears about this. And his father-in-law is, is sick and they call for Paul and Paul heals his father-in-law and other people bring sick ones to, to Paul and he heals all of them. And knowing Paul, he would have preached the gospel alongside of this. And, and what a door is opened up to the gospel all in this peculiar and yet God-ordained way. And so it is, dear believer, in your life as well. Those things that Satan means for evil, God means for good. And a lot of times the afflictions that we suffer, no matter how severe they are in our minds and hearts, the Lord can use this to exalt his own glory. Even as he did in the life of Job. And Job didn't understand everything that was happening to him, certainly not what Satan was doing. And yet the Lord said about Job, to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And despite all of, Job, of Satan's accusations, the Lord glorifies his grace in the life of Job, including the sufferings, which must tend to the glory of God. Spurgeon writes this regarding Paul in our chapter, the shipwreck of the vessel had not shipwrecked the gospel. In fact, it had given to Malta a noble opportunity to hear the gospel. For if there had been no storm, the gospel would not have reached Malta. And if there had been no viper, we cannot see how the gospel cause would have been promoted. And though Paul suffered shipwreck, Paul's faith did not suffer shipwreck. And all these things were ordered by the Lord and, for, and designed for the greater glory of the Lord. And God was fulfilling his promise. As you read in Isaiah 42, verse 24, the isles or the islands, including Malta, must wait for his word. And his word came. Keep silence before me, O ye islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let my servants speak. The islands will hear of the glory of God perhaps in perplexing ways. We're coming up upon Reformation Day. And, and one instance, one small instance, Calvin was preaching in Geneva, and in 1537, he was put out of Geneva. Imagine that. A minister of God, a godly minister, a faithful minister, put out of Geneva. And he simply calmly left the city of Geneva and went to Strasbourg and began preaching there and opening up the scriptures day after day after day after day. No harsh words could be found on his lips regarding Geneva. And when four years later Geneva called him back to take up the gospel mantle again, he did so. 
and he preached on the text, the next text after he had left off four years earlier, as if to say, my God ordains everything well, and who am I that I should complain? It is all for his glory, and as he sees best, so I will serve, and I will sacrifice, and I will suffer, whatever it is that the Lord ordains for me to suffer. If only he holds me up and suffers not my feet to be moved. Well, congregation, I don't know what providences await you. Young people, you have been here this week. I don't know what vipers or snakes are waiting to latch onto you in the next hours or days. But I pray, God, that you would face whatever God brings your way with this confidence that God can give even the vilest sinner here. He can turn your life completely right side up so that you too, by his grace, will triumph in the trials all for the sake of the cross of Christ. Because if there was ever a moment in history in which things seemed dark and things seemed lost, it was that moment when all hell broke loose around my Savior, Jesus. And yet he drank the cup. He endured the poison. He had the venom in order that I might go free. And you, child of God, for his sake too, you may live from out of Christ from out of the fullness that he has accomplished, from out of his person and on the basis of his work, so that the life that you now live in the flesh, you live from out of him. Oh, to live like that is to live as Christ, and to die is gain. How much longer is it before we reach the harbor the eternal harbor where none of God's children will arrive and be lost. Yes, they may arrive on boards. They may arrive, as it were, swimming. They may arrive cold. But they arrive. Child of God, your destiny is secure. It's bound up in Christ. Christ paid it all. And Christ procured your inheritance. And church of the living God, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and good doing Lord God of heaven and of earth, oh how we need this grace this undeserved mercy. We have sinned against thee and against thy grace. We have provoked thee to thy face. We confess thy judgment just. And yet we plead for mercy on the basis of Christ, that great conqueror over sin and Satan. And may we know that miracle of being engrafted into him, that our life is not our own, and that beautiful reality of faith, that it is not I that liveth, 
but Christ liveth in me. And then to endure the afflictions that thou dost see fit to bring our way, and to do so with uplifted head, knowing that this light affliction, which is but for a moment, it will bring eternal glory to all thy people. O Lord, we ask for those outside of Christ that thou wouldst convert them by thy Holy Spirit, that they would not rest until they rest in the Savior, that they would cry to thee and seek for that quiet place and not rest until they have Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Dismiss us then under thy hands of blessing. Keep us in the week that has already begun. Keep us from an unprepared death, we pray, and go with us. And all for Jesus' sake alone, amen.